For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about what metaphors I could spot in three viewings of the final movie of the Skywalker Saga. Hi, I'm Rob Hyatt of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during Season 3, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. Alright, this is the moment we've prepared for, people. This is not a drill, etc., I came out of this movie for the first time with complicated feelings. And after three times through now, my bottom line is that there's a lot that's good and bad in the film, and I'm done trying to shove it into either a good or bad category. As per usual, I'm going to try to focus on metaphoric analysis rather than my opinions of things, but I'm going to succeed less than I have in the past because this is all very new and exciting. Oh, and I'm assuming you've seen the movie already because this is going to be a big steaming pile of spoilers if you haven't. You have been warned. Let's get started with the Bantha in the Room, Ray's Lineage. If you're listening to this right after my last episode, you know that I think The Last Jedi pretty emphatically made the point that Jedi lineages are silly, and it's important to the narrative that Rey isn't anybody special. So you can imagine my sense of foreboding as this movie pretty clearly foreshadowed that it wasn't going to leave well enough alone on that question. I get that Abrams wanted to raise the emotional stakes for the climax, and perhaps this is also a way for the question of Rey's identity to get truly centered in the narrative, but the net effect for me is undoing the thematic point of The Last Jedi. In that movie, Rey was a nobody who rises up because anyone might be special, and because the rise of a dark power necessitates a rise in the light and vice versa. And the final shot of Broom Boy makes the point clear that anyone, anyone, can rise up and do amazing things. And then Rise of Skywalker comes along and tells us that no, not anyone, you must be connected to one of a couple of special bloodlines to be special yourself. Moreover, it makes the source of Rey's power a man. Your power is his power, which leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So there's clearly a bit of -of tug-of-war happening between episodes 9 and 8, as the different creators disagree on general direction. More surprising to me is 9 also conflicts with 7, which was also directed and co-written by Abrams? Rise of Skywalker, not content with giving Rey magic blood, also wants her parents to have been kind, decent people. But that's clearly nonsense. Even ignoring what Kylo Ren told us about them in Last Jedi, their actions have already told us they're not great people. Spin it as protecting her all you want. The fact that they left Rey to be exploited and abused by Unkar Plot is just inexcusable. The galaxy is supposed to have over a million inhabited worlds, and Obi-Wan had no trouble finding two different decent families to raise the Skywalker kids. I simply don't believe that Unkar Plot was the least bad choice available to Mr. and Mrs. Palpatine Jr. Kylo's explanation that they sold Rey for drinking money, implicitly because they were terrible parents, makes much more sense, and isn't even compatible with a Palpatine bloodline. Had the Emperor's son been raised in some kind of obscurity by his mother, never knowing who his father was, you can easily get to the kind of desperate straits that explain epically bad parenting. It's incredibly weird to me that Abrams would take this completely unnecessary diversion from what he personally had established about Rey's history. And speaking of subverting established history, let's talk a minute about Poe Dameron. As I mentioned before, Poe has so far been a sort of idealized personification of the Resistance, having two parents who are rebels and having essentially grown up around Leia and absorbing a bunch of her idealism. So I'm confused by the choice to suddenly give him a criminal past. While it doesn't directly contradict anything the movies have told us, for me it very much falls into the category of not technically untrue, but that the prequels created so much of, while also unfortunately reinforcing some extremely shitty stereotypes about Latinx people. From a narrative perspective, the only function Poe's shadiness serves is getting us into contact with Zori and Babu Freak, but it's actually well established in the Resistance cartoon that Poe has worked in intelligence, which can easily justify all kinds of underworld contacts. So the only conclusion I can come to here is that Poe is a former criminal to make him more like Han Solo, and frankly that feels like a weak reason to retcon his backstory, especially in a movie that actually has Han Solo in it. 
Let's also pour one out for the disappointed Poe Finn shippers, including me, who don't even get to have our unresolved tension this time, as both of them are paired off with new female love interests in a way that feels very directed from on high by executives to me. Fuck homophobia. Okay, that's enough negativity. Let's get back to metaphors and themes and stuff. Obviously, one of the big challenges of this movie was to continue the story after the tragic loss of Carrie Fisher, and I admire the fact that the writers went ahead and made it a theme, which they announced in the first words of the opening crawl. The dead speak! So beyond the parlor trick of writing the script around unused carry footage from The Force Awakens, let's count up how many dead characters speak in this film. Emperor Palpatine, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Anakin Skywalker, Mace Windu, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Qui-Gon Jinn, a bunch of other Jedi characters including Ahsoka Tano and Kanan Jarrus from the cartoons, and of course the chanting stadium full of a thousand generations of Sith. Furthermore, we have 3PO functionally dead for a while, but still talking as only 3PO can. And finally, Chewbacca apparently dies, and is then immediately taken to an interrogation room so he can talk there. Friends, this is officially what you call a motif. The other big motif that I spotted was the idea of feeling alone. When we first see Rey, she's unsuccessfully imploring the Jedi of the past to come keep her company. Zori tells Poe, who will repeat it to his friends in the Resistance, that the First Order wants you to feel alone. Finn discovers that he's not only not alone in being a former stormtrooper, but there's even a perfect, heteronormative, racially conventional love interest with essentially his exact background just waiting to fall in love with him immediately. Anyway... Complaints about the behind-the-scenes machinations that might be behind her inclusion aside, I actually rather like Janna and the idea of a contingent of former stormtroopers being key to toppling the military arm of the First Order, as opposed to the Sith necromancy arm. One of my favorite bits of symbolism in the film is Finn and Janna turning the command ship's guns on the bridge, so we see the military leader of the First Order killed specifically by the rebellion of his troops and even his equipment. Order above all is not sustainable, and evil tends to destroy itself. Which brings us neatly into the Palpatine-Ray confrontation. It's obviously important that Rey ultimately triumphs both by finding her community of Jedi, and also by using the Force solely for knowledge and defense, not to attack. And that's the loophole that keeps her from simply replacing Palpatine as the new Dark Lord of the Sith. Something that's easily missed about Palpatine, however, is that he's not in control as he thinks he is. You can imagine that being host to thousands of evil ghosts might not leave a lot of room for your own personality, and the fact that his life support gear makes him look like a puppet dangling on strings reinforces that idea for me. Maybe in life he was a fully realized being with his own agency, but this decrepit talking corpse is just a pawn of the collective will of the Sith. And the Sith are supposed to be the single most dangerous thing in the galaxy, which is why in a mere 30 years a mostly dead Sith lich can design, assemble, and crew a fleet of thousands of mile-long planet-killing spaceships. No, this makes no logical sense, but it follows the emotional logic of Star Wars, which is called space opera for a reason, folks. Star Wars is big and bombastic, and when it has to choose between intellectual rigor and visceral satisfaction, it will choose the latter option every time. Your mileage may vary, but I'm at peace with this. Similarly, my inner pedant thinks it's pretty dumb that there's this dagger that has all the signs and symbols of an ancient puzzle box clue, writing in a dead language that presents a riddle the protagonist has to solve, but it's clearly designed around the wreckage of Death Star 2, meaning it's at most 30 years old? But again, it's the kind of pulpy business that works well in this kind of fiction, so I can give it a pass while acknowledging it makes no sense. I actually really enjoy all the Indiana Jonesing around the galaxy our heroes do for the first half hour or so of this movie, and I'm delighted that it includes such pulp classics as Quicksand and a Giant Snake. My inner pedant was also initially disgusted with the idea that Thrupia wouldn't be able to translate the Sith language, until I caught the line where he starts to explain that the law was passed by the Senate, and now this shortcoming of his is actually an indictment of the bureaucratic failures of the Old Republic, and it's perfect. If the Republic represents the U.S., as I've argued in past episodes, this kind of reactionary lawmaking is a neat distillation. Oh, the Sith have a different view of how to do things? Well, we'll just make it illegal to understand anything they say. Problem solved. 
And we have textual evidence that communication is what's needed to reach peace. Ray was right all last movie that Kylo Ren is conflicted and needs compassion, and right now he's out being a Sith Lord in the streets and a Jedi in the sheets with his all-white bedroom. It's like a parody of the moral panic about how maybe your teenager's a Satanist. Does your supreme leader decorate his room in all-white? Does he spend a lot of time away from the family? He might be experimenting with the light side of the Force. And speaking of Kylo's light side influences... One of the intertextual points I really enjoy is the moment toward the end when Ben is running to help Ray and shoots a guy behind him without even looking. It's a near-perfect recreation of a shot Han took in The Force Awakens during the Battle of Takadana, and it makes me happy. There are a few other nods to The Force Awakens here, which really shouldn't surprise us given the J.J. Abrams connection. My favorite of these is the relevance of Ray's background as a scavenger. Poe looks at the Death Star wreckage and immediately despairs that they'll ever find anything in it. Ray both figures out the clue, then immediately sets off to do it herself. Dumpster diving in an abandoned Imperial Hulk is exactly in her wheelhouse, and she doesn't need anyone's help for this part of the plan. One thing that did sit oddly with me about this sequence, though, is that we spend time showing Ray as an able sailor. Given that she grew up in a desert, it definitely feels significant that she has to cross this body of extremely stormy water to reach her goal, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Is it just the toughest obstacle the writers could think to put in her way? Another cute Ray callback is when she finally gets to wear an X-Wing pilot's helmet while actually piloting an X-Wing, instead of just for fun while leaning against an AT-AT foot. And we take the time at the end of the movie at the moisture farm to show her once again riding a piece of scrap as a sand sled. What this says to me is that she's going to try again at this having a childhood business, this time on a desert planet that at least means something to her. For a final intertextual note, I'm going to zoom way out. I've seen some discussion of the fact that this movie ends similarly to several other Star Wars movies, in that the bad guys blow up and the good guys say, mission accomplished, and celebrate, only for the next battle or the next war to break out in the next movie. So given that, why should we be convinced that this really is a period of peace and prosperity we're embarking on here, and not just the next turn of the gears in what DJ called the machine in The Last Jedi? What makes us think the cycle is broken this time? Well, to be clear, I think DJ has a very accurate assessment of the situation, even if I disagree with his prescription. And certainly in the real world, it's pretty easy to point at the long history of U.S. adventurism and conclude that war is basically eternal and maybe we should be trying something new instead. But it is a strictly textual exercise. In the current canonical Star Wars galaxy, literally every war that we know about was directly the fault of Sheev Palpatine. So if he's actually dead for real this time, maybe war really is over. Again, I don't find this a satisfying answer, but it is supported in the text. Let's move on to my favorite part, which is the new lightsaber we see at the end that Rey has built for herself, and I love it for two separate reasons. First, the handle seems to have been built from her quarterstaff, suggesting that she has at long last integrated her dueling identities as the Nobody Scavenger and the Jedi Hero. Second, the blade is yellow, a first for the film franchise. I read this as a declaration that whatever new Jedi Order Rey winds up founding, and I hope they call themselves Skywalkers, it's going to be different from the old, extremely flawed Jedi Order we know from the prequels. That is two potent messages for a three-second beat with a single prop, and I love it. I also love that she ignites the thing close enough to the camera that we can actually see how the control works, which feels weirdly intimate. Not in a romantic sense, but just in a personal sense. Maybe it's just me. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in The Rise of Skywalker. But I'd love to hear what I missed. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or if you're a Chippersh patron, you can chat with me and the other Chippersh hosts in our Discord room. If you're not a Chippersh patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you. There will be a brief housekeeping note after the music. So, I know this show probably isn't the most regular thing in your podcast feed, and I'm sorry to tell you that's a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm largely putting the show on hiatus as I finally get serious about a novel I've been wanting to write for a long time now. I'm still planning to do breakdowns of Rogue One and Solo eventually, but it wouldn't surprise me if those were the only new episodes in 2020. In any case, thanks very much for inviting me into your ears, and feel free to reach out whenever you want to talk about Star Wars or metaphors. Thanks.